Amen. Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 2. Look at verses 16 through 23 this morning. Um, so, uh, once again, in a series on Colossians, looking at um, Paul's encouragement to that young congregation, uh, to, to kind of new believers there, um, to keep pursuing Christ, to keep walking by faith in Christ, even as they received Christ, we're supposed to walk in Christ uh, the same way, with faith in his grace. And um, Paul, in, um, in the letter, and particularly in our passage, he's expecting that there were going to be false teachers in Colossae if there weren't some already. Um, and he always had this problem with people uh, who basically thought that they were spiritually mature, most likely because they had been Jews for their whole lives. Um, and they thought that Paul's message of God's grace in the gospel, while it might have been good, was maybe incomplete. Right? It just wasn't quite enough. And these people, these people who uh, think that they're spiritually mature, would come in after him and they'd try to fix the church. They'd fight, try to uh, supplement, you know, fill out the message that he had proclaimed or that others had proclaimed, um, saying that, uh, yeah, you got a good start there with Jesus the Messiah, your sins are forgiven and everything. Now, in order to get better as a Christian, you really need to do this or that, especially they'd talk about keeping the law. So um, in case this is news to you, let me just tell you, a lot of people think that they know what the Bible says, but they don't really. A lot of people think that they know what the Bible says, but they don't really. They'll be able to quote a lot of scriptures to you, but the way that they understand them is wrong. Right? The center of their focus is wrong. The way they interpret the scriptures is wrong. Their approach is wrong. We're fairly aware of this problem when we look at, you know, kind of those legalistic cults out there, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, it's clear to see that, right? They take the scriptures, but they distort it. And you can tell that they're distorting it. Even if you're not sure exactly how to explain it, or how to articulate how they're distorting it. But the problem is more rampant uh, in the church than just with those cults over there that we all kind of consider are not really part of the church. Um, the problem's uh, deeper than that, and it affects people um, throughout the church. It, it even affects people in reform circles. Uh, people in churches like ours, it even affects people in our own denomination. It even affects people in our church, right? Um, Human beings have this compelling tendency, feel this great need to make ourselves better in order to feel better about our relationship with God, in order to feel okay about ourselves. Right? We call that um, self-righteousness. If we can do better, then we'll feel better. That's, that's what it boils down to, and that is exactly backwards, and we've been talking about that a lot in this uh, series on Colossians so far. Some of us aren't content just to struggle with that backwardsness inside of our own soul, the privacy of our own souls, right? Uh, some of us actually feel compelled to make other people feel like they need to get better in order to feel better about their relationship with God or feel better about their participation in the church, right? And that's really bad when we do that. Paul doesn't stand for that. So when false teachers draw the church's attention away from Christ, whether they're using the Bible to do it or other things, 
Um, it's pretty much the biggest threat that the church faces, which is why Paul addresses it so frequently, you know, so many of his letters, and uh, it's what he's doing here. So let's pray, and then we'll find out what he has to say to us about that. Father, we need your help as we consider your word. We need you to give us clarity of thought. We need you to change our affections by your Holy Spirit. And uh, we pray that the result of this would not, just that, would not just be that we would know some things better, but that we would truly uh, be closer to you through Christ, that we would truly be made more like Christ. So we ask that you would come and do this now as we consider your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind or the mind of the flesh, And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ, or since with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle. Do not taste. Don't even touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, kids... How many, I want to see your hands, uh, <clears throat> how many of you are in school? Homeschool, public school, private school, whatever, how many? Several of you, yeah? Most, probably most of the kids sitting in the room right now. Um, you can put your hands down. Thanks. Uh, <clears throat> when, um, when you do good things at school, things that you're supposed to do, kids, what, what happens? You... Um, you behave well, you try hard, you're helpful in class, you, you get a reward, right? I mean, your teacher affirms you. Your teacher says, good job. Um, when you do bad things in school, things you're not supposed to do, what happens? Think about that. Um, when you're disrespectful or disruptive, you're making noise, you're bugging your classmates, things like that, we all do that, right? Um, your teacher does not give you a star. Um, if there's kind of a, a board up there that shows these levels of performance, you get taken down a notch maybe on the, the little chart, or uh, you, you might even get sent to the office, right? You get sent to talk to the counselor or the principal or whatever. Um, and, and that feels bad, doesn't it? Um, so when you do good things, you're made to feel good about yourself. And when you do bad things, 
you're made to feel bad about yourself, right? Um, that's, that's the way this world works most of the time, right? Do you think that's how it works with God, kids? I mean, if you know what I'm talking about, do you think that that's how God works with us when you do good things? Uh, is your relationship with God good? But when you do bad things, God's not happy with you and your relationship is bad. Is that how it works? Um, hopefully you're picking up from the tone of my voice. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> right? That might be how you feel about it. That might be how you feel about it, but don't ever let anybody tell you that that's true because it's wrong. Right? Um, God loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He always wants to have a relationship with you. Because he sent his son Jesus for you, you can know that, even though you do bad things, right? You do good things, you do bad things, doesn't matter, right? Even though you don't deserve for him to love you, he loves you. He loves you when you're not good enough, which is all the time. Trust me, we all say that. <laughs> um, he loves you even when you're really bad, and that's called grace. It's loving you when you don't deserve it, right? Um, and that's how God is. That's what the Bible says about him over and over again. That's what we see clearly when we look at Jesus. Right? He likes people who are bad people, like us. When we do things wrong, he still loves us. And that's, that's who our God is. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Paul says in verses 16 and 17, <clears throat> Let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one look down on you. Let no one exclude you. Let no one wag their finger at you. Right? With regard to things like food and drink, what you're eating, um, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So, <clears throat> for everybody now, we, we always struggle with evaluating ourselves spiritually, with evaluating our spiritual relationship with God. And in the church, we do this. We evaluate ourselves by looking at how well we keep God's commandments, the things God has said to do. Are we doing that? If so, I can feel good. If not, I feel bad, right? A lot of those commandments uh, from the Old Testament don't even really apply anymore, including things like the dietary laws that's, that Paul's bringing up here, uh, which foods we can eat, which foods we can't eat, or other ceremonial laws, like um, probably that's what these you know, festivals, new moon, Sabbath business is talking about, kind of the ceremonial aspects of church calendar observances, right, church holidays. Maybe not uh, talking so much about the lasting um, aspects of the Sabbath, which is the one day in seven, which we read about earlier, which is a, a sign forever between God and his people that God's the one who makes us holy, right, that we rest in his grace. We still observe that, but, um, but the ceremonial aspects of the, the feasts, the festivals, uh, traveling to Jerusalem, uh, on the right days of, of the year. Uh, those things just don't apply anymore. These things were intended in various ways. We're not going to talk about all those things, but if you want to talk more about it, we'll talk about it in sermon discussion. They're intended in various ways to point to Jesus as the, the one way to be right with God. Right? Um, once and for all. The Old Testament laws, especially the laws that talked about religious observances, things that you do because you're a good Christian, Right? Um, the religious observances pointed people to their need for God's grace. And when Jesus came, he brought God's grace to us, and the need for those particular laws as a regular part of the Christian life 
uh, just went away. Right? But that never sat well with the people who, who thought highly of their spiritual status in God's sight uh, in Paul's day. It never sat well with the Jews in Paul's day. And they would teach you, you've still got to do these things. For example, circumcision, we talked about it a little bit last week. Um, and these false teachers, what they are, they would tell Christians, they would tell believers, the church, that if you really want to feel good about your relationship with God, then you've got to do these things. You've got to keep these laws. You've got to act in these ways. You've got to have these experiences. Right. So they gave rules, and some of these rules are straight out of the Old Testament, you know, so it's easy for us to fall prey to this idea, but they gave these rules as a means of spiritual self-evaluation, and so they put the heavy burden back on God's people that Jesus had explicitly taken away through his, his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection. They put the burden back. Um, when God gives us rules, surprise, we break them. God gives us rules and we break them, and that's one of the main points in his giving us the rules. To show us that we are sinners, that we're the kind of people that break the rules, right? God gives the rules, we break them, so we need not more rules, not better rules, not the ability to better keep the rules. We need God to forgive us for breaking the rules. We need God for lo to, to love us in spite of the fact that we're sinners. We need God to save us from ourselves. And that's the whole point of the gospel, that Jesus came into the world to bear our true guilt as lawbreakers, as sinners, to pay the full penalty for our sins on the cross and to, to grant us his own perfect record as one who always kept God's law, as the only one who ever fully kept God's law. Right? And our relationship to God, uh, to, to his law now, now that we're Christians, now that we're saved by grace, has not changed into a means of spiritual self-evaluation. Our, our relationship to the law, we don't use the law to judge ourselves. We do not have to keep God's laws in order to keep him happy with us. He has promised through Christ to always and forever be happy with us the same way he is always and forever happy with his own son, his beloved son, Jesus. So don't let other people, Paul is saying, don't let them burden your conscience with guilt for not living up to God's standards. Don't let them demoralize you by making you feel not good enough. I'm telling you right now, you're not good enough. Right? You're not good enough for God. You could never possibly be good enough for God. That should be your spiritual self-evaluation always. But God still loves you. That's the point of the gospel. You've got to hold on to that. Um, one of our elders' wives um, received a comment from another woman in our denomination to the effect that, hey, now that you're an elder's wife, you really need to watch what you say around other people. There's, there's something that sounds religious about that, right? <clears throat> you're in this position of status in the church. You're in this position of authority or um, esteem where others are looking to you. So you better really get your act together. 
But what, what is that? Now that she's in a position of advanced Christianity, she's got to really start keeping God's law or else what? She should feel guilty? Or else she's testifying poorly to the gospel of God's grace? Look, <clears throat> we are all here to grow together as God's people to grow in holiness, right? We really do want to get better as Christians, but we do that not by making much of our religious activities, not by making much of our spiritual behaviors, but by making much of Jesus Christ and his mercy, the gospel of grace. Uh, Paul says in verse 18 and 19, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up, puffed up without reason by his mind of flesh, um, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So Paul is addressing the same uh, root problem here that he was addressing in the previous two verses, uh, but it's a bit different in the expression of it, right? Instead of the false teaching of keeping God's law to be better, if you want to be right with God, you've got to keep his law, He's addressing the false teaching of having some kind of heightened spiritual experience to be a better Christian. That's kind of what those things boil down to. We're not exactly sure what it means of worship of angels that's being talked about here, but you get the idea. He's talking about getting really serious about your faith, extreme self-denial, ecstatic worship experiences. Right? And some teachers do this when they say, We'll know you're really a Christian when you speak in tongues. Right? I mean, we've all heard that. And secretly they judge you or dismiss you if they know you don't speak in tongues. You're second class, Christian at least. Right? I used to feel this way in college. I would be tremendously dis disappointed with a worship experience if I didn't cry at some point in the service. If this stuff is going to be really real, if it's really at work in my life, then it is going to move me to tears at some point in the sermon or some song or communion or whatever. We should be thankful when we sense God's uh, work in our lives like that, but we should not expect those kinds of experiences all the time uh, or evaluate ourselves spiritually by how much we got into worship or how on fire for Jesus we are. That's not how we evaluate ourselves Spiritually, it's the same thing as keeping the law to evaluate our standing with God. Um, it's something about us, something in us, something that we do that we're looking for to assure us that God loves us. That we really fit in here in the church, that we're really part of things, what God is doing. And when we look at ourselves, it is just never going to be enough. You are going to live your whole life feeling the frustration that you are not good enough. and You'll feel that frustration in a multitude of ways and people will make you feel like God doesn't love you unless you're meeting some standard. Right? Some standard or other. Whether it's implicit or explicit, people will make you feel guilty for not doing this. And the gospel speaks directly to that and says, in spite of the fact that you're not doing that, in spite of the fact that you're never going to be good enough, God is for you. He always has been. He always will be for eternity because of his mercy, and that never changes. And the Christian life isn't about 
getting better to the point where you can wean yourself off of God's grace, where you no longer need to turn to Jesus. You need less and less of his grace as you get better, right, to be able to feel better about yourself in and of yourself. The Christian life is about seeing your need of Jesus increasing so that when you are most mature, you have the greatest sense of your need and you run most quickly to Jesus and his mercy. So kids, as you grow up, I mean, you, you think about Jesus a little bit now, you should be thinking about Jesus more and more every day for the rest of your life. And the Christian life is one that we have to live together, right? He's talking about that. He's saying we're holding fast to the head of the body. It's the corporate people of God so that we all grow together with the growth that comes from God. And N.T. Wright says in his commentary on this passage, it is no shame when a Christian finds that he or she cannot grow spiritually without support and help from fellow believers. It is rather a surprise that anyone should have thought such a thing possible, let alone desirable. We're in this together to encourage one another to fix our eyes on Christ and take our eyes off ourselves, not to make ourselves feel guilty, not to make each other feel guilty about living up to a certain standard. There are a lot of ways in which we do that, but that's not uh, what's supposed to take place in a church. He continues in verse 20 and following. If or since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. We looked at that last week or the week before. Um, It's these these kind of false gods. It's just the way the world works, right? The the basic expectations, the the gods that we all give ourselves to, the local deities of the world that we look to to um, make ourselves right with God. Uh, You die to that, and if if you died with uh, Christ to that, why... As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, kind of talking about the the food laws. When you eat it, it is destroyed, and so it has no lasting significance for your relationship with God according to human precepts and teachings, right? Here it's all summed up. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, if you trust him and him alone, for his mercy to reconcile you to God, then you have been reconciled to God forever. You've died to those old ways of trying to reconcile yourself to God. You've died to the old ways of spiritual self-evaluation. You've died to regulations, to law-keeping, the way that it is taught by everybody in the world who are trying to use these things to feel good about their relationship with God. Die to that. He continues in verse 23, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These things, they look like we're, we're beating ourselves up. We're stopping our flesh, right? These ways of evaluating ourselves spiritually, they seem right. They really do seem right, but they are of no value in the fight against the flesh. They seem right because the assumption of our hearts about them is all wrong. Trying harder to get better in order to grow as a Christian, in order to feel better about our relationship with God and our place among God's people, it is of no value in the fight against the flesh because it's the means of growth that the flesh proposes 
This, this is the means of growth that comes from the old nature, the old ways of living that we died to when we died with Christ on the cross. Your flesh, your flesh, the part of you that wants nothing to do with God, the part of you that seeks to be like God for yourself, the part of you that seeks to justify yourself in your own sight, your flesh is what's telling you that you can do enough so you should try. Your flesh is what's telling you you need to keep God's law in order to grow. Your flesh is what's telling you you need to have this great mystical, ecstatic, spiritual experience in order to be a real Christian. Your flesh is what's telling you you need to embrace asceticism and self-denial and severity to the body in order to achieve greater degrees of God's favor. Your flesh is telling you that. That's why those methods of growth and spiritual self-evaluation don't work in the fight against the flesh. They're the flesh's tools and tactics to keep you away from God, to keep you away from your need for God's mercy. <clears throat> we do want to grow as Christians. We do really want to get better, but we can't use the, the tools of the flesh to do that. Steve Brown says he's got a great book called A Scandalous Freedom. <clears throat> I recommend it for everybody. Um, he says that the greatest cause for our not getting better is our obsession with not getting better. There is a better way of getting better than trying harder. Sanctification is what we're talking about when we say getting better, right? Sanctification becomes a reality in those believers who don't obsess over their own sanctification. Holiness hardly ever becomes a reality until we care more about Jesus than about holiness. The only people who get better are people that know that if they never get better, God will love them anyway. Right? We need to care more about Jesus than about whether or not we're living up to the standards of God or the standards we set for ourselves, the standards of holiness that we'll never live up to. Right? You need to care more about Jesus than that. You need to know, even, even if you never got much better than you are right now, God has loved you anyway. God will always love you anyway. Not because of who you are, not because of what you do, but because he has set his love on you unchangeably through his son. He's done it once and for all. Jesus is the friend of sinners. You remember how that made people feel who were trying to commend themselves to God by their good works, by their observance of the law? They hated that about Jesus. That he was the friend of sinners. Right. But for people like us, it's good news. People who know we need God's mercy, we have no other hope but Jesus. That he's a friend of people just like us, we need that. That's good news for us. That's the gospel. And when you keep your eyes on that, <clears throat> the Bible says you'll get a little better. You get a little better. Right? That's what the Bible says about the gospel and about our growth as Christians, don't ever let anyone else tell you otherwise. That's what Paul's saying. Amen. Let's, um, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it is indeed a great struggle that we have to think and feel clearly about our actions in your sight, our behavior, our spiritual state. Um, all these things are a mess because our hearts are a mess 
We need you to sort these things out because we can't do it ourselves. We need your word to do it. We need your spirit to apply your word to our hearts. And so we pray that you would assure us of your love in a way that um, melts away all of our fears, all of our worries about not living up to your standards, that you would assure us of your love for, uh, for us in such a way that we would truly be changed by it, that your love um, and your grace would be our delight and that we would be thankful and that we would be joyful because of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ and that out of that place then uh, we would move forward in the Christian life together, uh, hand in hand, um, lifting one another up in grace at all times and in every way. We pray that this would be true of us, not only as individuals, but in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.